Hi, shalom everyone, and welcome uh, to another episode of Crossing Boundaries. I'm Kim Pasiosef, uh, streaming to you live from Tel Aviv, Israel, and together with me is uh, one of our amazing co-founders, Aziz Abusera. Hello, Aziz. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing well, doing well. Uh, good, good. We're actually continuing um, one of the episodes that we we had previously. It was episode 15. We called it Count on Me as well. Uh, we're talking about racial divisions, and we have two new guests. We were planning on having uh, one of the guests return, and uh, we did a last-minute switch. But I will say that uh, both guests are obviously uh, still amazing human beings, and uh, we're very eager to hear their stories. Um, if anyone has questions, if you joined us last time and you had a question that wasn't answered, please feel free to just jot it down on the chat or on Facebook. Uh, we're, we're looking on all platforms. Um, and of course, continue asking questions during the show as well. So um, hello, Todd and uh, TM. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So, so maybe we can start... Uh, by, by hearing a bit about you two. Uh, TM, you actually were born in Germany, if uh, my, my memory is right, and you joined uh, a white nationalist group very early on. Uh, can you tell us about your story? Well, let me try to put that in a nutshell, otherwise it will take like an hour. <laughs> so born in Germany, 1975, very small town, um, born into a dysfunctional family, mother was drinking, parents divorced, well, a lot of problems, the only Catholics in a town full of Protestants, um, even though not practicing, but anyway, so I grew up um, as a weird kid that didn't fit in in the town. Uh, we even spoke a different dialect. So that was very, very tricky, and I was a perfect victim for bullies, you know, and the thing was I was bullied a lot. And... I tried to change that because, again, I thought something is different with me. I didn't, I didn't understand it as a child that it was a lot of the, the family environment or the reputation my family had. So, being said, I was a kid that you could push around, a kid that felt like I'm in the corner, you know. And from, I would have done anything in the world to get out of the corner, to not to be the kid anymore that you can push around. Because I was looking also for a purpose, for an identity. I was a sense of belonging. Uh, that I didn't have. And it started actually with uh, racist and anti-Semitic jokes on the schoolyard. A lot of the boys told each other those jokes, age of 13. And how so often it started when we started talking about the Holocaust and World War II in school. And looking back, I think it's a bad time presenting that topic to a 13-year-old boy in puberty. That should maybe have been done earlier. Uh, but we're all looking for for something to act up. And so we use those topics, telling each other those jokes. Um, I always call it, it's unintentional anti-Semitism, unintentional racism. Yes, it was racist and anti-Semitic, but not for the intent to hate Jews or hate black people. It was for the intent to grab attention, get attention, and it worked. The other kids went back to normal at some point. I don't know what happened. Were they smarter? Did the parents sit down with them? I don't know. My problem was I didn't have a normal to go back to. So I stayed with those jokes a little bit longer. And at some point at the age of 15, I was looking out for a group of skinheads. So I joined them. I was not recruited. I joined them. And at the age of 17, 
I joined a far-right nationalist party in Germany. So you see there's like from cracking jokes, just grabbing attention, becoming a skinhead. It was not even about politics then. And then joining the party at the age of 17. That's when the ideology kicked in. I became a nationalist. It was all about Germany first and that stuff. And from then on, I, the journey just continued. Uh, I was always into arts. I liked to draw and, and write short stories. I liked to sing. I got myself a guitar and started a skinhead band. So I, all of a sudden, I had all the attention I ever wanted. I had the full attention of everybody, literally everybody. And I was cheap. But like, it felt great. I was just liked and loved by, by the people in that movement because if you're on stage and just sing those lyrics they want to hear. And I felt like the, the biggest rock star ever at the time. And uh, then in the late uh, 90s, the internet became more important. 98, all the websites popped up. You had a lot of far-right websites and chat rooms too. This is when I started to connect with people worldwide. There were chat rooms on the IRC chats. I remember that. There were different chats. One was called White Power, another one. And that's no joke. They called it like Holocaust 2000. It was one of the chat rooms where all these people met. And I got to know all these people worldwide. And um, I felt like, oh, wow, that's not only the Germans are under attack. Those people from North America telling me the same story, the people from Australia, from Russia, from South Africa, from everywhere. That's not about just the Germans. And I felt like the white race is under attack. So I became actually a, there was a white power movement, the white supremacist movement. It, be, it became about, defending the white race rather than defending the germ germany as a country and that's when something very crucial changed too um they told me to read a certain book that will explain everything that will let me know who the real enemy is which is not just the communists or the black people or whatever that was a book called the protocols of the design which you would say today is fake news um, made up by Russian anti-Zionists in 1903 to discredit Jews and to, to stir hate against them. And that took off, like here in the US, Henry Ford in Germany, Hitler used it and everything. Um, and it presented us with a big solution. Okay, it's the Jews are the real enemy and we have to take them out because they control everything. And, you know, it felt like I found the Holy Grail, explained everything. And it presented us with that overpowerful enemy that we have to, that we have to fight. And uh, I could be the superhero or one of the superheroes defending the white race and save everybody. And honestly, which kid or young man doesn't want to be a superhero? Seriously. And if I ask people when I'm speaking, I ask, ask all the time, Jewish community, ask, don't you want to defend your people? Yeah, sure. I'll speak to the black community. Don't you want to defend your people? Yeah, sure. And this is exactly how I felt with the wrong message, with... But again, today you call it fake news. And this is exactly what happened. So and I climbed up the ladder and finally I joined the Ku Klux Klan in Germany and worked with groups in the U.S. for a couple of years and became the, the leader in Europe until I finally dropped out in 2002. That was only because of government pressure first. There was a lot of infighting and everything, but government pressure. And... I moved to another town. It was finally the compassion I received from a Turkish Muslim. We moved into their house. They had the apartment below us. And the interaction between us, or between me mainly and the, and the landlord, showed me, showed me just that they're just people. Because I 
look, there was in 2002, one year after 9-11. Uh, and I was expecting all Muslims to be like Osama bin Laden. And I was, I was like, yeah, I was afraid that he will kill me in my bed when I'm sleeping at some point, you know? And I was really convinced I could uh, rip off the mask of his face and expose him as the Turkish Muslim terrorist that I thought he was. And I tried so hard and it didn't work because that wasn't him. And he actually exposed me. I had the mask on, literally, you know? And this is when I really, when, when all the hate started to crumble. And I always say it was laying in front of me, all those crumbs, and I had to decide, do I put them back together in a, into a loaf of hate? Or am I going to go and analyze all this? And being back then in Germany has a really, really big Muslim community that gave me a great chance to, to go out and go to mosques and, and get to know more Muslims and have conversations. Well, just to find out, guess what? They're just people. And I received the same compassion. Then I moved to Memphis in 2012, gave me the great chance to get in touch with the, uh, with the African-American community. The black community there is, is big. I mean, it's, uh, um, it's 70% in Memphis. So, well, guess what? They're just people. And then two years ago, I started exploring the Jewish community. And now I'm even attending a synagogue. Uh, so guess what? They're just people. So, and you can see it's a, it's a thread going through my story. The compassion that I didn't receive when I was a child, the false compassion that I received from the white supremacist movement, and the real compassion that I received, surprisingly, from my former enemies. And this is just my basic message show compassion sit down talk to people who seem different right. and find commonalities that's that's amazing uh, it's amazing because the organization where i met uh, arno also is is looking at those type of relationship uh, i'm your protector and mm -hmm. the the power of what one person's compassion on what we perceive the enemy one person's empathy how we can uh, treat someone who we think is complete radical and that Turkish guy for him you were totally the other the radical the the white nationalist and yet he didn't treat you with that that way he treated you like a human being and that has so so much power um, Todd uh, I wanted to I was reading your story and uh, one thing struck me in your story is when you were a kid, you mentioned about education. You mentioned specifically a teacher who really affected you and made you probably go on the path you're on today, fall in love with understanding who Martin Luther King Jr. was and what, what did he do and how can I get involved in, in that. Can you tell us about growing up uh, your story, but also about that power of education we often don't think about? Because I was asking a few of my friends when... Uh, I was, I read something about African-Americans in education and I decided to try uh, an experiment. And I asked a few of my white friends, how many of you had an African-American teacher in school? And I was quite surprised that the vast majority of them didn't. And maybe that, that's a link we often miss. So can you, can you tell us about that teacher and about your story growing up? Well, first of all, I, I want to thank you again for, for this opportunity. Uh, and TM, thank you for, for, uh, for your story. There were so many parts of your story uh, that, that, I could, that I could so resonate with. You know, one is, you know, as you talked about that early education, you know, formal um, and informal, 
and the difference that that can make, the impact that can make on the trajectory of, of one's life. And so, um, Aziz, you referred to, um, Mom, uh, I'll probably get in trouble for this, but my favorite teacher from, uh, from my schooling years, uh, Mrs. Potter. Uh, I guess I should say I'm from, I'm from Pennsylvania. I'm born and raised in Western, Western Pennsylvania, and I live in the central part of, this, of the state, a uh, little, little city called Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. So small town. Um, but coming up through um, my uh, education in both junior high and high school, um, I had the opportunity to do some very deep dives in the study of, of African-American history. Um, you know, what took place in the school was supported, you know, uh, at home, was supported in my church. Uh, so I always had this sense of, of belonging, uh, of connectedness uh, to my past. And that um, that didn't make me better than anyone else, um, but that made me responsible uh, to make sure that that um, that the history uh, continues to go forward and be told. It was only when I got to college that I realized how unique of an experience, educational experience, I had in terms of being exposed to that history. Because you know, when you're when you're growing up someplace, you think whatever is going on there is going on all over the world if you think much about the world. So I assumed that um, the school systems all throughout the United States uh, had the same kind of curriculum that, that mine did. And boy, was I shocked to find out um, how impressive my small little town uh, was. You know, I tell people I came along, I guess, just at the right time, um, you know, in the mid to, to late 80s. Um, of all of the history that, that, that uh, Mrs. Potter exposed us to, I guess the chapter of that history that stood out the most for me was the the chapter of the civil rights movement. Um, I think partly because I came of age as the Martin Luther King holiday became a national holiday. And so, you know, really fascinated with that time, so much uh, fascinated with with King um, that I actually went to Morehouse, his his alma mater. Um, I didn't graduate from there. I didn't finish there. I finished back home, but just to, to walk the same grounds. Uh, that he did um, and other um, leading figures did was so impactful for me. So I guess throughout my college years, I must have talked about this history a lot, um, probably uh, annoyed some people with it that I talked about it so much. But about uh, almost 20 years ago now, um, I had a friend from undergrad call me and say that he was going to put together a, a trip to civil rights sites for campus ministers and could I recommend some books for them to read. And so I gave him a few books and didn't think more about it. And then uh, about a month before his trip, he says, you know, you're going on this with me, right? And I said, no, I'm not. And it's funny because, you know, for two decades now, I've been leading uh, tours and, and all the excuses I gave him as to why I wouldn't go are the kinds of excuses people give me now. Um, some of my excuses were pretty legit though, um, but, but I had ones that were not all that legit. I said, well, I've been to Atlanta and I've been to Memphis and I've seen Eyes of the Prize, so I understand the story. And nothing could be further uh, from the truth. You know, you don't begin to understand the story uh, until you walk the places where that story happened and engage the people. And even then, 20 years later, I'm still, I'm still learning. Um, but just to, to connect with, with what TM um, said uh, and his own trajectory, um, I mean, I echo uh, what, what Dr. King um, used to say that, you know, one of the reasons that people fear each other is because they don't know each other. And they don't know each other because they don't communicate. And they don't communicate because they're separate. And so 
so grateful um, for the work that the PM and others are doing. I think it parallels the, the work that everyone on this call uh, is doing, finding ways uh, to break down those um, false barriers of separation and, and, and uh, really open up genuine opportunities uh, to realize, as, as Maya Angelou said, that uh, we're more alike than we are unalike. That doesn't mean to gloss over the ways in which we're different, uh, but really to learn to appreciate the ways in which we're, uh, we're different uh, as well. That's, that's what I always say. I mean, find the commonalities. And it always looks like we're so different, but we're actually not, you know. Uh, the crucial point when, when I was actually with, with a Turkish landlord, it was actually a dinner he inv invited me to. You know, I expected, what will he have, like falafel and couscous or whatever, some stuff I don't know. Because he always gave me like tur Turkish tea and pancakes and everything. Uh, that was something I could get over and, and you know, I, I helped him with the computer sometimes. But that was a dinner. I was sitting in his kitchen, you know, we're eating. And, and well, the first thing was really something Mediterranean. It was fish soup, actually, and I could not eat that. But then guess what? It was chicken and fries they served, you know? And I was like, that seemed so normal, you know what I mean? And then you go into the black community. And guess what? They all like chicken and fries. You know, then you go to the Jewish community. How often have I have I been served chicken and fries in the Jewish community, you know? <laughs> and, and you know, that's why I always say, we all like chicken and fries, you know? This is where it starts. Which, and this is why food is also so important. One thing I, I realized, especially um, I'm working so much in Memphis, and I started my nonprofit, which is called Change, very describing, actually. Uh, and in 2016... Um, it was actually when police brutality sparked some, uh, this, the, the whole uh, protests when Elton Sterling and Philando Castile were, were killed and murdered. And, and I wanted to, to build bridges over the gap that seemed to be become bigger and bigger between especially black and white in Memphis. And I realized talking to a lot of my black friends, I was like, the question came up and then you ask a lot of white people, so you got black friends? And as long as you don't get the answer, I wrote down their names, you know. But seriously, uh, uh, they say yes. And I ask, you, ask them, how often have they been at your dinner table last year or this year? Zero, right? Then I ask my black friends, how often have you had white, your white friends at the dinner table having soul food with you? The answer is for the most part, zero. So, so these people are not your friends. They're coworkers, classmates, teammates, whatever. But that's it. As, until they are not worthy to break bread with you. Please don't call them your friends. And this is why it's so important to get together. And it's just amazing um, what you can reach just if you get to know people. And then it's perfect over, over breaking bread. And you realize what you all have in common. And I have 10,000 stories like that where you see where two people, it seems so different. But just if we have a minute, I will tell you one story. Very, very describing. Go ahead. Okay. Um, a company I worked for, the, uh, the director of operations in Alabama. He's African-American. His name is Marvin. Before he did that, he used to work for the railroad. And when he worked for the railroad, there was also a Klansman. Everybody knew he was a Klansman working for the railroad. So, of course, they never had anything to do with each other. And one day, the supervisor, I don't know if he didn't pay attention, bad joke, I don't know, put Marvin, the black guy, and the Klansman together in the pickup truck and told him, you go down to the, to the railroad tracks, do whatever it was, would take the whole day. 
So, of course, they got the pickup truck, started driving, and after an hour, guess what? They were not talking. You would think, what would they talk about, right? So, and this, this wasn't, and there was just silence until Marvin the Black Guy says, Dude, this is so stupid. And the Klansman says, What? He said, We're here for an hour and we're not talking. He says, Look, you don't have to come to my house. We don't have to be friends. You don't have to get to know my parents, my kids, or my, my wife, or whatever. But there must be something we can talk about. The Klansman says, Okay, what do you want to talk about? Still expecting. There was nothing they could talk about, right? Because, hey, I'm a clan. He's a black guy. But there's nothing. And they found out both love motorcycles. They had a passion for motorcycles. For the rest of the day, they were talking about motorcycles, forgetting that he was in the clan and he was black. And the next day, they met each other on the railroad uh, yard. And um, the Klansman saw Marvin. was, Marvin, Marvin, ran over, tapped him on the shoulder. And this would have never happened the day before. They went down to the railroad tracks. Why? Because they that was the day when they found the common ground and when the commonalities became more important than the color of their skin. This is just so describing. We just have to damn it, sit down and talk. I that's that's an amazing story, and I I agree completely that uh, these miscon misconceptions um, are what usually stops us from creating the connection. Um, but it does take me to something that I myself experienced when I was working with the Ethiopian community in Israel. I wanted to come and eat at their dinner table, but they were too scared to ask me to come over. And, and even when I, when I pushed, they said no. Um, so I think that there's something about what um, Todd said before, that pride that you have in your history and in your culture is also important to create that connection. It's not just up to you know the one person to to make that step you know what i think that is it's pride but it's also fear because on one hand they may think yeah i actually want that family over on the other hand you know you have a very close community and you're afraid that a stranger is coming in into your community with different ideas and it's poisoning your community or your ideas or religion and very funny i mean you're, you're in in tel aviv and i'm uh I talked, and that was actually in New York. Uh, I spent the whole time uh, with the Orthodox Jewish community. And I spoke at a yeshiva there. I went to a shul there. So I think the what I realized talking to eighth graders in the Orthodox community, how, how secluded that was and, and, and everything, and how, how many non-Jewish friends do you have? And like, like three quarters of them said, none. I said, why? Well, we're here in the Jewish community. They were so tight. And I talked to parents, too. And I talked to rabbis and teachers and everything. They told me, too, that it's often, very often, especially then, uh, the more religious it gets or the more political it gets, you know, there's uh, a fear. Yes, we are open, but not that open because they may bring in something that interrupts our community, that interrupts our rules and maybe plant some ideas that we don't want our kids to hear. You know, and we see that in many. That's just one example that just happened to me this year. But I've seen it in the black community, in the in the Muslim community. You see it, it political too. You have now conservatives and liberals. Like, no, I don't want the lip tarts on my table. No, I don't want the Trumpsters on my table. You know, at my table. And that's the same same thing. You don't invite your neighbors anymore because they may bring liberal or conservative views to your dinner table, which you don't want your kids to be around. 
Yeah. Well, this is a big problem. I was going to say, I think, I think another uh, issue is uh, fatigue. Um, that you know, I always tell people that when you're engaging in this kind of work, um, if you're not committed to be in it for the long haul, for the long term, but it's a way of life, it's a way of living, uh, then you're almost better off not to get in it. I mean, I've had people who who said, you know, well, I want to seek reconciliation and I want to get to know uh, the African American community, and and so then I've become maybe a gateway for them to get to know that. But you discover really real quickly that they're not in it for the long haul. They want to be able to say, well, I have a black friend, kind of like you were saying earlier, uh, TM. Uh, but they really don't want to, they really don't want a friendship. They really don't want to know what that means. They they sometimes just want to ease their their conscience or ease whatever guilt uh, they might have. And so it's then like, now the like next the time, black person. yeah. And so then like the next time somebody approaches, I mean, the, the, the example I give is, is, is this. I, I've been asked so many times throughout my career to be on, on boards. Um, and I know exactly why they, they ask a lot of times because I can bring diversity to their board. Um, and then you, uh, you get there and nobody talks to you, nobody engages you, nobody involves you. And uh, you know, so I've grown weary or at least leery anytime now somebody approaches me about joining their board or joining their organization. Um, and, and I've learned to kind of flip that back to them. Now they might, I don't always say no, but I don't always say yes either. They might take, you know, my initial reluctance as, oh, we'll see, well, he doesn't want to get to know me. And it's like, no, I've got a history of, you know, trying to engage these efforts. Um, and, and then people aren't, aren't sincere uh, and, and in it for, for, for longevity. Yeah. Todd, can you tell us about the Common Ground Project and what's, what's your Common Ground Project is all about? Because in, in some ways, I feel it fits exactly into what TM just, just mentioned earlier. Yeah, so the, the, yeah, the Common Ground Project is a, is a nonprofit um, that, that I and a colleague founded uh, a number of years ago um, to do just that, to um, open up our shared stories and our shared history um, we particularly use the lens of the civil rights movement uh, as a way to have uh, meaningful conversations. You know, I often say for a nation that claims to love history so much, uh, we are so illiterate when it comes to our shared history and so ahistorical um, that we sometimes can't tell the difference between history and propaganda, right? And so, you know, oftentimes people will talk about the civil rights movement uh, or the freedom struggle as African-American history. Um, and it's not, it's, a, it's American history that in many ways has shaped world history. It's our story. Uh, and that's probably one of the things that's most revealing for people. Um, you know, our, our, our ultimate uh, event that we do is the tour, but we have other educational programming throughout. But one of the things I think that's most revealing uh, for people, mainly whites, uh, when they go on a, on, a, on a trip like this is to find out the role, uh, the positive roles that whites played in the civil rights movement. I mean, I'll never fails every tour, I'll get someone about two or three days in, younger white person will come up alongside me on the bus and um, they'll tell me how you know, great a time they're having. So I already know where the story's gonna go. And then they'll say, you know, as I was preparing to come, my aunt, my grandmother, my uncle, my dad, you kind of fill in the blank told me, you don't want to go on that because that's got nothing to do with you. It's going to be all these black people and they're going to tell you how bad white people are. And they said, I came on this trip and they're like, first of all, the 
the, the, the bus is like almost majority white here. They said, but then I'm learning the stories of whites who were involved in the movement. I'm learning deeper stories, uh, particularly of people of faith in the movement. And I'm not experiencing or seeing what, you know, aunt, uncle, granddad told me I, I, I would. And for the first time for many of them, they begin to own that history and become proud of that history and realize again, it's not your story, my story, it's, it's our story. That's awesome. And, and that's why we're very glad to be, uh, to be working with you soon and partnering with you on, on these trips uh, in the South. And, and TM, you, you live in Mississippi, so um, I'm sure we will be coming and bringing our groups to hopefully meet with you as we come down to, uh, the, no, you live in Memphis, right? I was going to tell TM, I'm, I'm, coming to, I'm coming to Memphis to break bread with him. Um, and, and maybe have some chicken and fries. Uh, I know people try to say that whatever their unique cultural dish is tastes like chicken. I was down there in Arkansas one time and some people tried to get me on frog legs and said, it tastes like chicken. I said, well, just give me chicken then. I don't want the frog legs. <laughs> ah, nice, <laughs> nice. Um, so, uh, TM, can you tell us, you're involved in so many projects. It's so hard to, to choose one to ask you about. Um, but I'd like to hear more about change and what you're doing with that project, uh, change. It started actually as a community project to bring like the black and the white community together. And I had also a chance to tell my story, where I'm coming from, and why this is so important to me. Uh, what happened in the aftermath was that a lot of people reached out to me who also wanted to disengage from the white supremacist movement. Uh, neo-Nazi movement, or um, also what you call nowadays the alt-right movement. And start talking to them, I started helping a couple to disengage, or, or also some who already have disengaged prior to that, to overcome their, I call it PTSD, because that's what a lot of people have that come out of cults like that. Um, gangs, white supremacist movement, jihadist movement, that is very similar. You, there's a certain PTSD that's there. And we work on that. And we also have a program that is called Erasing the Hate, where we team up with tattoo parlors all across the country and we cover up hate tattoos, racist tattoos, gang tattoos for free. Because very often people don't have the money to do that. And there's a lot of judgment in there too. Um, because a lot of people who have been involved in such kind of groups, um, they're afraid to tell the public. They sometimes don't even tell their partners, their spouses the exact things what they've done or what they've been involved in because it's like it's a coming out it's like you're in the closet and you're you have to come out and it's always tricky um when the when there's the right time to come out and i help them with it too what, what's the right time for coming out and also that you're that you're in in charge of your own coming out that you're in charge of the narrative because if somebody else takes care of that for you, it, it's very counterproductive. So I encourage people to talk about it, go public about it, tell people, make no secret out of it. And it, it works, it helps healing and everything. So we do a lot of things. Uh, and one project we do, I just bring those people together with minorities, with the black community, with uh, the Jewish community, with the Muslim community, with the LGBTQ community, whatever I think is important and crucial and helpful at that moment, uh, I think 
I put them in the situations. Let's say I have somebody who just put a white hood over their head last year, and I help them disengaging and de-radicalizing. That takes years. Uh, then I put them in, I say, uncomfortable situations, maybe a dinner with a with a with an elderly black couple, for example. You know, sometimes I have my best friend. He's an uh, he's a former Bloods gang member and now a pastor. He's African American. So sometimes I have the buddy situation with him that makes it easier. But sometimes I put them in stereotypical situations too. Sometimes I take them to the synagogue and and have them meet uh, with a rabbi, just to see where do they stand, how uncomfortable do they feel, where are they in the healing process, where are they in their de-radicalization process. And so we can work on the inner demons. That's fascinating. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that they come with a lot of uh, fear themselves. Uh, what will people think about me in this situation? Yep. It's, uh, it's, that's that fear is overwhelming for them. It's sometimes so overwhelming that they don't want to do it because that's a fear of rejection. That's why some people don't talk about it for 10 years, 20 years. And you see the same path. It's not only in the white supremacist movement. You have the jihadist movement or ex-former jihadists. You have former gang members. Who wants to talk about it because you're labeled, you know? And that's just, it's its hard for people to get over that. TM, I'm, I'm sure you had similar fears um you know when you when you left the the movement how did you how did you navigate that not at all my problem was when i left that movement that was in 2002 there was a group in germany it's called they're called exit germany or exit deutschland i work with them today as well i'm their ambassador here in the u.s but back in the day i didn't want to engage with them because i thought there's judgment and that they would just show me off or whatever I, i didn't know exactly what would happen so i didn't engage with them I just thought I have nobody to talk and there was a fear of rejection. I didn't talk about it for 10 years until I got brutally outed by the news in Germany in 2012. I was not in charge of the narrative. I was not in charge of my coming out. And that was not a good thing. It took me like three further years from 2012. I was, I felt already de-radicalized for 10 years. Um, but still for another three years, I had trouble talking about it. I had trouble reflecting on, on it until I finally felt comfortable in 2015, 16, starting to talk about it. When I met other formers, how we call them, not only former white supremacists, again, other cults too. And that helped healing. And then I started talking to other organizations and the, again, the compassion from the black community or especially from the Jewish community. I started working with the Simon Wiesenthal Center very closely in 2018 and still do. And it helped a lot too, because they have, they have a lot of experience in that. And um, it, that helped a lot. Well, we have a question from the listeners. I'm assuming uh, you didn't receive that same compassion from uh, your previous friends from the clan or from um, other <laughs> um so can you tell us a little bit about that? Did you meet with these people or um, ever, you know, discuss this, uh, I guess, moving to the other side? Well, if you do that, once you leave them, you're automatically a traitor. There's different ways how you can leave. You can just disengage and not tell anybody about it and not speak out against them because then nobody knows if you are, if you also renounce your beliefs. You know, renouncing your beliefs is the next step that will make you a traitor. Then being a snitch, of course, if you go public, say names and all of that stuff. This is always where I tell people, be careful when you go public, what you say, how you say it. We go 
through that together. Don't make yourself a target. You can talk about against hate without making yourself a target. Because we still want to talk to those people, yes. It's hard to talk to somebody who looks like a white supremacist or may, is maybe a white supremacist. But they're just human beings. I mean, I've got there. They have the reasons why they got there. Those reasons might not be rational or, or, or substantial to us, you know, but to them, they're real. Those fears are real. So we need to talk to them. But back to that question, um, of course, I've got a couple of death threats, but that's not very crucial. That's for the most part, it doesn't actually happen. The thing is more, once you're out there, they try to, there's a lot of den denunciation because um, they try to make you just look bad. They will tell people, oh, that person has not really been in the movement. That person was not really into that. They didn't really believe into that. And they try to make you look bad rather than they threaten you. They try to take your credibility away. This is how they try to fight you when, when you leave and go public. Thank you. I'm, I'm assuming that's super difficult um, process that you that you took on yourself. Um, Todd, I see a question from, uh, from the listeners uh, wanting to hear your thoughts about the uh, New York Times 1619 project. Um, I don't know what the specific um, question is. I know for some, um, that's a controversial uh, project. Um, but what I appreciate about uh, the 1619 Project and efforts like that is that really what they are challenging us to do, it goes back to what I said earlier about uh, fuller stories, right? They're challenging us to really think about a more complete story uh, of this nation, particularly the story around uh, what Brian Stevenson likes to call the narrative of racial difference, right? That we've constructed a history, uh, a politics, a theology, a pseudoscience, uh, if you will, around this myth of race, right? That, that has us believe that some people are more human than others, that some people aren't even human, um, right? Um, you know, Brian Stevenson goes on to say that, you know, uh, a lot of our conversation, you know, we're good at, at, at the uh, false sense of, 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 of celebration and in hero worship, um, but we're not always good at truth telling. We're not always good at apologizing uh, for the mistakes in our history. And I think that's that's the spirit for me uh, behind the 1619 Project that, that I love is it's asking us to take a look at our long history, right? Uh, we think that, you know, well, those things that, that, that happened, happened so long ago, but I think as you heard in my, in my brother's testimony, um, that it's these false tellings of history, these false stories that we repeat and we repeat and repeat, but still have some, some staying power for people. You know, I often tell people, you know, whether you want to use uh, 1619 or if that, if that date doesn't make you uh, uh, comfortable, you want to use 1776, uh, you can do that. But the truth of the matter is if you just do the basic math, we as a nation have spent more years not practicing what we preach um, than actually practicing what we preach. Uh, in terms of freedom, justice, and equality for all. You know, 1619 to 1865, that's 246 years where we practice racialized democracy, if there's such a thing uh, in this country. And then we took a little break. We called it Reconstruction and said, well, all right, well, maybe let's actually try to be the nation that we aspire to be. And then we follow that up uh, with Jim Crow. And some people believe that, well, you know, again, that that was so long ago um, you know, I always tell people, they say, if you don't know who said a quote, 
uh, then you can say that uh, it was Mark Twain, right? So according to Mark Twain, uh, history may not repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. And I think, again, that's what the 1619 Project is challenging us to, to explore is how is that history that we like to pretend is so long ago and so far in the past and so great rhyming in this present moment? Uh, and if you've got eyes to see uh, and ears to hear and a heart to feel, uh, you can see a whole lot of rhyming going on in this in this present moment in our nation. Kim, I know longer than we promised, but I got a couple of questions for you from the viewers and then if you need to go, we, we understand. But one, one is about whether you uh, visited any of the camps uh, when you were in Germany. Um, I, I think he means the Nazi uh, mm -hmm. camps there. And the second is, uh, and this will come back to you, Todd, later about, but growing up, somebody saying, growing up in the white suburbs, how do I make meaningful connections with the black people? Where do I even start? Okay, um, I have, am I allowed? Yeah, um, I have never visited any camps. Unfortunately, it's on my, it's on my bucket list. It's very on the top of the bucket list. You know, nowadays a lot of uh, school classes in Germany go there because I think Germany doesn't is doing a great job atoning, making up for the Holocaust, reflecting on the past, making sure it must never happen again. And back in the t uh, the day when I went to school there. There was education, but we, we didn't go to the camps. Later, when I became a full-blown anti-Semite, I also was a Holocaust denier. And I felt like I don't want to go there because they're feeding me lies. Later, when I was not anti-Semite anymore, I thought I don't have to go there because I know it happened. Nobody has to prove it to me, if that makes any sense. It was just in the last two years that I felt that urge, I need to go there. And it was ha actually happened when I went to the Museum of Tolerance in um, Los Angeles, which is run by the Simon Wiesenthal Center, and went through the Holocaust exhibit. They have the replica, replica of the gas chamber there. And you go through there and everything, and that just made click. And I was like, I have to go. I have to see that. I have to reflect on that part, and I have to do that. So it's, it's on my list. I have to do it. It's important. But before I go, just um, my two cents to that other question that uh, Alan probably can answer even better. But this is very interesting. Again, my, my best friend, he's African-American um, in the Memphis metro area. And we talk about these things a lot. We, we, we were sitting at that dinner table. Sometimes my wife and I are the only white people there. And we talk about these things. One important thing is do not walk on eggshells. And a lot of people are afraid. Oh, my God, you can't say that. You know, there's, there's certain things you, you don't feel comfortable asking the black community. But I think we have to. If we want to get straight answers and learn, we have to ask. There's one famous thing, my friend and I, we always talk about that. There's a thing like white people's spaghetti and black people's spaghetti. It's, I don't know if that's nationwide, but it's here in the South at least. And white people cook the spaghetti different than black people. And nobody's asking. Nobody, you know, but these are just a question. Just, man, go and ask. Pick somebody and say, hey, I have questions. I want them. Then you come into a conversation and you also can ask questions nowadays. Um, how do you feel about the this, this situation? Are you afraid as a black man leaving the house or when a cop pulls you over? Are you afraid? How does it make you feel? Does it bother you? 
or doesn't it bother you? Because it's important. You have that narrative coming from the far right. They pull their token black people, like that sheriff from Texas, or Candace Owens and all these people, and saying, no, that's all not true, and black people, there's no problem, there's no oppression, and they, they don't have to feel unsafe. But we have, then say, how many black people do you really know if you share that stuff on Facebook? Because they share all these videos of these two black twins. I always forget their names, but you probably know who I mean. And they share that stuff that you're only sharing that. Where is your black friends that you say you have replying to your threats on Facebook and saying, oh, yeah, it's true. That's no problem. You don't see your black friends doing that. Why? This is why I encourage people. Go and have these conversations and be frank, be open and say, hey, I want to know. If I put my foot in my mouth, tell me. I just don't know any better. But these are questions I have. Just be open and frank and bold. You know, you have to. I did when I moved, when I came to the United States that helped me do this was going to a, a black church. And I... I don't know how I ended up going there, but I ended up going to this church. I was uh, uh, literally the only <laughs> black person there, and it was an amazing experience. And after, I was really moved by how many people just came and gave me a hug and asked me if I want to go with them to lunch. Like, we think it's a lot more complicated, I think, than it really is sometimes. And sure. women, there are so many natural places we can we can meet people. And I appreciate that question because I think so many people have it and don't know how to ask it. Uh, but Kim, thank you so much. And I'm really looking forward to being in Memphis, hopefully early next year as we start running. Absolutely. Meet with you and uh, bring many, many groups to meet with you in person when that becomes uh, possible. And obviously, Todd, if it's okay to keep you for a little bit longer, Maybe especially, and obviously, Kim, if you want to stay, you will come by. I know you, you said you had, you had to go. But, Todd, if you want to answer that question as well about how do people make connections. Well, I, I want to tell TM before he goes, wow, brother, I can't wait to come to Memphis and, and hang out with you. I'm looking forward to getting to spend some time with you. Uh, we will definitely do that. Um, you know, I think I think uh, you know you you uh, you both hit it on the head that it's not as hard as we think. Um, you know, I have to do that all the time in the spaces that I occupy. I interact more with more people who don't look like me uh, than than do. Uh, part of it is just being bold and and stepping out there, um, putting yourself in spaces where you might be the only one, putting yourself in spaces where you're going to need to be vulnerable, putting yourself in spaces where uh, you will need to show some humility uh, where you're not going to be perhaps the one in charge. I mean, all of those sorts of, of things. But before, you know, I tell people that you get caught up in a list of what are some things that I should do. You actually have to back up and ask yourself, what is it that I see? You know, what is it that I see? Um, you know, if you think about where you live, how did it get that way? You know, maybe you weren't responsible for that, but how did... How did that suburb or that neighborhood that you're in get to have the demographic composition that it did? And really wrestle with, you know, even that history. And that's what I mean by it's not an out there history. It's a right here, right now of sort of history. And if you don't, if you don't really see clearly, you're going to find yourself doing things that you think solve the problem, that you think move you towards relationship, 
and they're really just a distraction. I'll give you a perfect example. I, I love the National Football League. I, I do. Um, but my goodness, if they go forward with their plan this uh, fall uh, for the first game to sing the Negro National Anthem, um, that is one of the dumbest suggestions I've ever heard. And not because I don't value that, that anthem, I certainly do. But nobody asked you. You know what we really need? Is we need you to sing the Negro National Anthem as though somehow that's a response or a clap back to the national anthem, and it's not. And what I say is, if that's their solution, they're, they're not seeing the problem clearly. The problem is, um, you know, what you did um, to eliminate somebody from the league because they took a position that you didn't want them to take. The problem is uh, in your hiring, uh, on your coaching staffs, and, and, and in the front office. That's the problem. But if you think singing the national Negro national anthem is going to solve that problem, you're not seeing clearly. Thanks, Todd. Um, I have a question. I know that most of our listeners are probably already sold on going on a tour with you, um, but can you tell us a bit more about the tours that we're planning together um, and, and just give us maybe a short pitch about why people should go on this tour? Sure, sure. Um, again, you know, there are some great documentaries uh, that have been done some fascinating books that have been written uh, about the movement, but there is nothing like the power of place. Being in those places where the history happened, and in many instances, having opportunities to be with the people uh, who made that, that, that history. And so whether you're spending time in, in Memphis, or Atlanta, Birmingham, Selma, um, Charleston, you know, and the list goes on, um, it's an opportunity to do more than just uh, look at exhibits in a, in a museum. Um, it's an opportunity to really connect uh, with that living history. And again, realize the relevance that it has for us right here, right now. I'll give you a perfect example. So a few years ago, uh, we remember what happened in, um, in, uh, in Charleston uh, when, uh, when the young man uh, walked into uh, Mother Emanuel uh, and killed um, nine members, including the pastor uh, of that of that church. At that very hour, um, I was with a group several miles away. We were in Birmingham, you know, site of a, a tragic church bombing in 1963. And we were sitting um, there having a meeting with um, one of the sisters um, of one of the girls that was killed in that bombing, as well as with a woman who was a member as a young person uh, at that church. In fact, she actually answered the phone call when the bombers called. And we're sitting there talking about 1963. The sermon that was to be preached that day um, at, at 16th Street Baptist Church was a love that forgives. Obviously, when the bombing happened, that, that sermon was not preached. And we were reflecting on what would a message like that look like in this current day and age, a love that forgives. And how can you forgive in the midst of uh, such a tragedy like that one? Little did we know that while we were sitting in that room having that conversation, this young man is sitting in a Bible study uh, with people who opened up their church home to him, um, plotting about trying to start a, a racial holy war, uh, if you will. And then he, he you know, executes uh, nine of their members. And so on the one hand, you're, 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 I mean, we walked out of the, the meeting with the, 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 the survivors of 16th Street and we felt hopeful that particularly being people of faith, we could turn this thing around. 
And then no sooner do we get off the elevator getting to our rooms, we get the news about Mother Emanuel. But, but it reminds me, you know, it's so fitting that we're having this conversation uh, today um, as, the, as the final homegoing service is happening for, for the late Congressman John Lewis. Um, but he reminded us that, that, that even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of brokenness, that we cannot be a people who give in to despair, uh, that we've got to be a people uh, of hope. Uh, and who press on, um, and that that's 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 the message that I want everyone to get when they go on an experience like this. It's not just exploring some distant past, and it's not just exploring somebody else's story. It's it's exploring our collective history and what it means for us right now. Thank you, thank you so much. I I think that's a such a powerful story, and that's uh, probably an amazing way to end uh, to end our conversation uh, for today but we we definitely looking forward to people joining us joining you on on some of these trips and hopefully we'll be planning many many more together and as i said earlier also hopefully being able to see tm uh, in uh, memphis and starting to do more stuff together the the four of us, five of us here, uh, being able to plan these, uh, these ideas and these trips and not just as a, as a place to visit the classic tourism, but really as an educational, cultural understanding, the food, understanding the music, understanding the history, understanding, you know, how, how people do pasta differently in different parts of, uh, of uh, Memphis or the South. This is, uh, this is an amazing, uh, amazing thing. And I'm, so looking forward to be able to travel safely again so we can do this uh, together. I've got, a, I've got a caterer in Montgomery who's going to make you want to move to Alabama. <laughs> you know, I'm slowly moving toward the south. <laughs> I've only officially lived in the south in the United States. So. <laughs> and South Carolina coming up next. It's very south. And then slowly, who knows, I'll end up either in Memphis or, or in Alabama. <laughs> Awesome. Absolutely. Looking forward to meeting you. Thank you. Thank you, Tian. Uh, well, Kim, any, anything else I forgot to say? No, thank you so much, uh, both of you, Tian and Todd. Um, amazing conversation. And thank you, Aziz. Um, and you have that sentence that you like to say. One of those episodes where it fits very well. We always say... <laughs> really where you travel, but it's how you travel. And uh, Todd and TM, you definitely prove that that's true. Thank you and have a good day. Thank you. Thank you.